Hello and welcome to a special episode of the IHA Legislative Update podcast. The following interviews were recorded on site at the 2020 IHA Hospital Day on the Hill. I'm Emily Liskey, Director of Communications. And I'm Joa Hogan, Director of Education Services. Today, we talk with National Election Forecaster David Wasserman. Wasserman is House Editor for the Cook Political Report and shared his insights into the 2020 Iowa and National Congressional races with hospital advocates at IHA Hospital Day on the Hill. Thanks, David, for joining us today. What are the key metrics you use to gauge voter behavior? Well, that's a, that's a big question, and it's the key one for, for every election year, and especially 2020. We at the Cook Political Report look at a variety of factors from past election results in a given district, uh, the trend line, both in terms of demographics and in terms of, uh, of national polling. Uh, my approach to kind of cutting out the noise that we see in polls is to try and aggregate um, a, a time series of, of polls that provides us some uh, larger sample sizes and gives us a better idea of, of the long view and where voters might be trending on, on particular issues they care about. And then applying uh, the, the, what we call the cross tabs, uh, the various demographic patterns that we see in those polls to given states or districts that, uh, that, have, uh, char- that have different characteristics. And here in Iowa, uh, the dominant characteristic is um, a lot of white voters uh, who are um, who do not have college degrees. Uh, that was the group that we saw the biggest surge for Trump across the country in 2016, and that explains, you know, why we saw such a big surge for Trump here in 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 that year. What are some of the more interesting or unexpected behaviors you've looked at? Well, uh, you know, it's it's funny. We've seen a simultaneous. Uh, movement of both parties towards the political polls, uh, but we've also seen a rise in uh, in the numbers of Americans who say that they're unaffiliated uh, and and that they feel like neither party represents their their values or beliefs. And what that's done is it's given an, given an opening to candidates who may be perceived by elites as uh, as as on the fringes, uh, but really come across to uh, to those voters. Uh, who are unaffiliated as anti-establishment or, or anti-elite. And so in, in the 2016 Republican primaries, uh, Trump was underestimated uh, by, by the media. And uh, he wasn't really a Republican. Uh, he had been, at various points, a Democratic donor. He had held positions that were anathema to the Republican Party, but he saw a party that was fractured, hollow, and he took the thing over. What we're seeing in 2020 right now is Bernie Sanders uh, it has appeal among uh, not a majority of Democrats, but but uh, enough of a hardcore following to be able to win primaries and caucuses, and he's not perceived as as, uh, as part of the Democratic establishment. And part of his appeal is taking on both parties' establishments, much as Trump pledged to do in 2016. So uh, whether that materializes in his nomination, uh, we'll find out. Uh, likely in the next few weeks, but uh, it's it's not quite a mirror image, but there are similarities between what we're seeing um, uh, in the parties. 
And because of that, do you see any role in this election for the third party candidate? Do you see a rise of a third party candidate? Well, we could have a lot of voters who are dissatisfied with their choices uh, in the general election, much as there were a lot of voters in 2016 who were dissatisfied with their choices. Clinton and Trump were the least popular nominees personally in the history of polling of presidential elections. Uh, we could have a similar scenario in, in November um, if um, there are a, a lot of voters, let's say, who are suburban uh, professionals who don't like Donald Trump, don't like his style. They don't uh, like Bernie Sanders' rhetoric either, and they're fearful of what he might do to the economy. And the result, uh, you know, it would seem to, to make sense that there would be an opening for, for a third-party candidate. But what we know about American elections is that our electoral college system, our first-past-the-post uh, you know, winner-take-all system um, really penalizes or provides a barrier to those third-party candidates. You know, if, if you want to win the presidency as an independent, you've got to win 270 electoral college votes. You've got to find a way to cut through a very polarized map and assemble pluralities in enough states to get you there. Because if you don't win a majority of electoral votes, then the election would go to the House of Representatives, which is dominated by partisans. And voters don't want to throw their votes away. I'm going to go a little off topic here, but at the PAC luncheon that you spoke at last fall, I wasn't a part of that. You, Joa, were in on that. But you had mentioned, because um, I talked to some of my colleagues about how some of the voters or some of the studies you've done show at different restaurants these voters have these demographics and can you expand on that a little bit sure so i've had this retail theory of politics for the last seven years and it's kind of kitschy but uh during a slow news week at the cook report uh one day i decided to try and identify which two chains were the best predictors of where democrats and republicans were gaining ground and so i plotted out using a gis application over 100 different stores and restaurants, and I lined it up with the voting precincts. And what I found was that the best indicator of where Democrats were gaining strength was Whole Foods Market, and the best indicator for Republicans was Cracker Barrel. Now, here in Iowa, uh, you might have to throw the machine shed in as well, I'm not sure. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, those, those two chains correlate pretty strongly with where we've seen the parties uh, consolidate support. And just to give you an idea, back in 1992, uh, Bill Clinton won 59% uh, of the counties that today have a Whole Foods and 40% huh. of the counties that today have a Cracker Barrel. That was a 19-point gap. But that gap's gone every uh, gone up every year. And in 2016, Trump won the White House winning 76% of Cracker Barrels and 22% of Whole Foods. So that was a 54-point gap. And that gives you an idea of the, the political polarization that we've yeah. seen. And uh, even if... Uh, there is a sizable victory for one side or the other this November. We're unlikely to see a 40-state landslide of the kind uh, Ronald Reagan enjoyed in 1984 or that uh, you know, Richard Nixon enjoyed in 1972. We're just far too geographically polarized as a country for, uh, for a, a near-unanimous result. Do you have any predictions of the future state of Iowa being the first in the nation and having a caucus? <laughs> <laughs> well... Uh, from today's vantage point, it's not looking good for Iowa. Uh, it was uh, it was something that that could have been avoided had uh, had the Iowa Democratic Party agreed on a more simplified process. Uh, but I remember a conversation I had with David Yepsen, who had been uh, the, the lead 
political reporter for the Des Moines Register for decades, uh, and he told me uh, in February of 2019 that he believed that uh, between the uh, new satellite caucus locations, the, uh, the mandate to report three different sets of results, and uh, a, a new app that they were using, that there would be chaos uh, because you know he comes from rural Iowa. He realizes that um, precinct chairs have been accustomed to uh, to the way things work for a while, and if if it changes, there's bound to be confusion. And he was right, and he was fearful that uh, that uh, this would be the end of the caucuses, and it it, it may well be. Now, my advice to uh, Iowa Democrats, if they <laughs> want to preserve this tradition would be to adopt something similar to what we see on the Republican side, where it's more of a straight count of voters, uh, and it's uh, much faster to report, it's much easier for, for the media to digest. Do you have any advice for hospital advocates as they engage with their policymakers today? So my advice would be that uh, even though it's fashionable to call politicians uh, you know, corrupt these days and, and that, uh, and that you know, it's easy to be distrustful of institutions of government. Uh, most politicians you'll meet uh, you know, really go into public service because they want to get something done uh, and they, they want to do well by the communities that they serve. But they also respond rationally to the political incentives in their districts. And one of the reasons we see very little getting done in Washington uh, is that Members of Congress, first and foremost, have to win their primaries. They represent typically districts that are safe for one party or the other. Iowa's traditionally been a more competitive state in terms of um, you know, the, the political composition of its own legislative districts. Uh, it's also had a robust tradition of nonpartisan redistricting that has uh, enabled more competition and, and generated more frequent change. But even so, we're seeing polarization here in Iowa between urban versus rural. Democrats are gaining ground in Des Moines, they're gaining ground in Iowa City, and they're losing some strength in, in rural uh, counties. And my advice to, uh, to stakeholders in healthcare would be to engage in these elections uh, uh, well in advance of November. Because oftentimes, if you're, uh, if you're uh, trying to advocate for your policy positions, uh, in September and October, the race is already over, and that really heightens the importance of getting involved early on in an election cycle and asking the candidates uh, uh, tough questions, and if, if you don't like what someone has to say, maybe ensuring that they have a challenger in their primary um, who is, is advocating for you. Absolutely. Well, great. Well, thank you so much for your time. Yeah. And thanks for being here today. We look forward to your <laughs> formal presentation. Hi, this is Joa Hogan. We're live at the Capitol for the IHA Day on the Hill. My name is Deb Burnett, and I'm the Director of Mental Health Services at St. Anthony Regional Hospital in Carroll, Iowa. Stephanie Newmeyer, and I'm an education nurse at St. Anthony Regional Hospital in Carroll, Iowa. And is this the first time you've been to the IHA Day on the Hill? It is. For both yeah. of you? Yes. So how was your experience overall? It started out nerve-wracking, but truthfully, I appreciated IHA walking us through all the steps and coming here, and then we met with Representative Best, and he did a great job of um, welcoming us and listening to the great. things that I needed, yeah. 
They were supportive of issues that you brought up? Absolutely. He said that he really works closely with the IHA and he really appreciated us coming and agreed with what we had to say. And you thought the process went pretty smoothly to speak with your legislative person? I did, yes. Yeah. It was made very easy. I think my concern was, well, oh my gosh, what if I forget the bill number? Sure. What if I, and, and then I talked to him specifically as mental health. Obviously, I want to talk things related to that. And I was like, that one bill, but then he let me expand on the different issues that we have in our, um, in our community. And awesome. I just felt like he was really listening. I appreciated the time I got to spend with him. Well, any other general feedback or thoughts about the day? No, we're appreciative to be able to be here and to speak our voices for the rural community and just looking forward to coming back in the future. My name is Craig Wells. I'm the CIO at Grape Community Hospital in Hamburg. I've met with our congressman, yeah, a representative. Haven't met with our senator yet. Okay. And how did it go? Superb. Yeah, he's always uh, very receptive to what we have to say and our concerns and and uh, we feel like he's uh, very much on our side. Was there any specific issues that you addressed today? Uh, for us, the biggest one was telehealth on the suggested list. We talked about that just briefly. Rob Gardner, CEO, Henry County Health Center, Mount Pleasant Island. Kevin Kincaid, CEO, Knoxville Hospital and Clinics. Welcome, and so how many years have you attended the IHA Hospital Day on the Hill? Ooh. Ooh, good question. I believe this is my 10th year attending. I am at least eight. I've made it every year that I've been in Knoxville, so this is at least eight. And have you seen the process change very much? Uh, I would say we've seen the process change, I think, uh, from a sense that I feel we have a really good established relationship with some key legislators that uh, now knowing uh, how we communicate with our legislators, uh, to be an effective communicator, to talk about the issue, uh, speak specifically about a bill, uh, maybe amendments or two that would help the hospital community. Uh, I think I've been able to be able to do that more effectively because of the education the Hospital Association has shared with us. Uh, just as they did today about talking through, uh, when you talk to a, a legislator about a bill and then how it impacts it. So yeah, I've seen those changes over the years. Oh, great. Uh, I, I, w- I would add that the seems over the last uh, eight years that there's a seems to be every year a greater awareness of the impact that hospitals have on the districts that they're representing and uh, so that the representatives tend to be uh, a little more um, uh, aware of our issues and and where we're coming from from an advocacy perspective and actually uh, really appreciative of us providing information and some education about uh, certain bills that are coming through their committees or uh, when they have to make a final vote because uh, I think they're beginning to really realize the impact this has on the folks that they're representing. And so everything went good today? Felt like the discussion with the legislators went well? Yeah, I've, I've only been able to have the discussion with our uh, representative because they're, the Senate's tied up in a discussion right now. But uh, yeah, very effective. I actually really appreciate it because uh, some of the bills that we have, as of emphasis, uh, may be coming to the House floor today, so he was really oh, appreciative wow. talking about where we are at with things, so that was good. I was able to meet with our representative, John Thorpe, and uh, Senator Amy Sinclair. Uh, Senator Sinclair was kind of been able to celebrate a big win today. She uh, got a, a bill through unanimously. 
which I didn't know that happened. I didn't know that happened either. That was 100% bipartisan support. Bipartisan support. Only so in Iowa. That, uh, that was pretty incredible. So, big day for her. And, um, filed her paperwork to run again today as well. So, uh, big day for our senator. Um, really look forward to interacting with them whenever we get a chance. So they've been strong supporters of the hospital community, both of them. So. We really appreciate that. Well, perfect. Well, thank you very much. Thanks for coming today. You Thanks bet. for stopping by. You bet. Yeah, thank you, guys. It. You bet. I am Sarah Smith, and I am on the Board of Trustees at Unity Point Grinnell Regional Medical Center. So that would be in Grinnell, Iowa. And were you able to meet with your legislator today? Yes, I was able to meet uh, with him today and talk in particular for um, for Kaushi County, where, I, where, where, where Grinnell is in. Um, really, an important issue right now is the emergency medical service services bill that's um, that's in the House right now, and in particular, making it um, uh, making it a mandatory service, making it part of an essential service for our county, which is in the state of Iowa, it's currently not. And what that is caused recently is now, and our county has multiple different ambulance services. Um, Lots of different entities are paying different rates, um, and it really causes some gap. In particular, there was an accident right outside of town the other day. It took 40 minutes for them to get to our local hospital because the ambulance it was outside of the city limits. It had to come from a county um, medical emergency medical um, an ambulance service instead of a hospital and a service right in the in the city itself because. It's not mandatory, so everyone's trying to find the right care, the right fit. Um, it's, it's. I'm not pointing fingers at anyone. Um, it's just because it's not a, an essential service. There's so many different rates and factors that go into it. So if we had one spot taking care of the the rate for or requiring the service in the county, that would be great. Was your legislator supportive? Um, he was going to look at it a little bit more. Um, I think he did, he was listening to us. It was uh, a great opportunity to talk with him about an issue that really hits home with me, especially being on the Board of Trustees at the hospital in Grinnell and really talking about why that service needs to be essential um, and um, for our county and for our, our state. Well, so, thanks well, for coming today. Yes, thank thanks you. for stopping by. Thank you very much. Thank you. Well, I'm Steve Bomber, and I'm the president and CEO of Methodist Jenny Edmondson Hospital in Council Bluffs, Iowa. And how many years have you attended the IHA Hospital Day on the Hill? How many years has it been going on? <laughs> so I've, I've attended at least 10 plus years of, of Iowa Hospital Day on the Hill. So I've been the CEO at Jenny now for 13 years, so at least 13 years I've been here. And in those 13 years, have you seen the process change, or have you th seen things overall change at all? I think overall I get more comfortable being here so that's probably the biggest part of the change I think our legislators from our neck of the woods are very responsive and open to uh, giving us access and listening to our concerns and issues so I think it's a very essential component but uh, hospital day on the hill um, it, it lets collectively the legislative body know that uh, uh, they need to take care of their community hospitals. And you were able to meet with your legislators today? Yes, every one of them except one who is uh, not available, but they'll be at the legislative reception tonight. So it should oh, be yeah, fantastic. And was there any particular issues that you talked about today? So we, we really focused heavily um, on, on the Senate side with tort reform. Uh, they're debating that issue as we speak. And it uh, seems like, obviously, uh, I think it's going to pass with the... Uh, 750,000 uh, uh, cap on non-economic damages. We did visit uh, about telehealth parity as well, but that's still in the House uh, today. 
Uh, we talked a little bit about the IHA data issue, and again, that's still in the House. So those were the main issues, the same issues that we talked about with our representatives um, uh, on, on the House side. So we told them that we think tort reform should be coming over here shortly and tried to get a feel for where their take was on that. And then uh, I think we've got, at least from, from our representatives, some pretty good support on telehealth parity. Um, and I think they, they will give us support on the, the IHA data issue as well, on trying to shoot maybe for slowing that process down and giving us a little bit more time in that. Do you have any uh, final thoughts or advice for new CEOs or new presidents of hospitals who have not attended this event? One, I think attending the event is very important to stay connected with your legislators. and. The new CEOs may feel a little bit uncomfortable with that, some more comfortable than others, but I think it's uh, IHA helps provide a platform, uh, talking points, um, and, and a forum to be able to, to interact, in, a, in a, especially in the legislative reception in kind of a casual manner to get to know your legislators. So I think it's very, very beneficial to engage. Um, I think being engaged with IHA in general helps new CEOs understand the issues, find commonality, get support, because every community is dealing with lots of different issues, as well as common issues. And, and I think being engaged with IHA, you're, you're able to find that support. My name is Nicole Presh. I am a Vice President of Government Relations and Legal Counsel for the Iowa Hospital Association. What advice would you give to our members that weren't able to make it today, how they can continue advocating for issues? Absolutely. Some of our grassroots advocacy is some of the best advocacy that we have. So if you are not here today, it's really um, pretty easy. Call up your legislator or send an email. Um, you can, uh, we can you know, if you contact me or one of the other members of um, Iowa Hospital Association, we can connect you with your legislator, uh, and then you can contact them personally. Have coffee with them. Send an email. Make a phone call. Um, you can, uh, you know, a lot of times they'll meet with you and discuss your priorities and some of the things that you, you know, that are um, priorities for your hospital. Perfect. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. My name is Brian Best state representative from House District 12 in Carroll, Carroll County. Great, thanks for joining us tonight at the IHA Hospital Down the Hill reception. Do you have any advice for our members on do's and don'ts when advocating for an issue? Uh, one piece of advice I would give is, although uh, it's hard sometimes to get people to do uh, something that really comes from their brain and their heart, a lot of times we see cut and paste type things that come across. Um, those are um, those are fine too, but sometimes just a note, especially if your if my constituent knows me personally, and it comes from their heart, or if they say this, I wanted to forward this to you um, on behalf of IHA, it makes it a little bit more effective. Um, a lot of legislature le legislators will not look at anything that comes from outside the district, so it's always good to make sure that everybody knows that it is important for them to contact their local. Um, uh, representative. Uh, so if I see something from Muscatine, Iowa, and I'm in Carroll, it, it's a lot less likely uh, that I would pay a whole lot of attention to it. Uh, another thing is, is if you come up to the, the hill, um, I think that always has uh, more impact also. If it's important enough to come to the state capitol and talk to us about it, uh, that, that really helps. Um, your, your call to actions that, you, that sometimes uh, different uh, special or interest groups will do, uh, those are helpful. Uh, but again, the, the, the cut and paste sometimes, uh, when we see about a hundred of them, 
and we know that only one came from our district. Sometimes it, it almost hurts your cause to a certain degree with different places. But uh, when, you, when people come up to the hill, they just need to remember that we're human beings just like they are. And so uh, some, I know I've, I've heard of people that have been up there, and when they got to, the, uh, to talk to the sergeant at arms, they didn't even ask him to send the paper in because they were just so intimidated by the process and the you know the big grand capital and then they, they don't see themselves as an important part of that and they really are and uh, any representative or senator um, should uh, and maybe not maybe they don't all do this but everybody should be aware that we work for our constituents back home and so if it's the the CEO of the hospital or if it's a person who just wants to advocate for that local hospital. Um, it, it's important to me, and I think it's important to most of us that they do that. So we we wear underwear just like everybody else does. Oh, perfect. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. Yeah. Thanks for coming tonight, okay. and thank you for your service. Yeah. All right. Okay, I'm Representative Mike Bergen. I represent Winnishick, Fayette, Clayton Counties. I've got three hospitals in my uh, area. Uh, when I visit with my local constituents, uh, hospital representatives, I look for a message that's similar to the hospital association. Uh, if there are variances, I want to know why. Uh, I'm also interested in knowing how the hospital position, position affects them individually uh, to, to know if there's differences uh, that we need to be aware of. Did you have some good uh, experiences with our members today? Yes, I had uh, two members from uh, Palmer Lutheran came up. Uh, we were able to talk in, in detail about the issues uh, and how it was an impact to them uh, as well. Um, we need to be cognizant of as, as bills move forward that amendments can come forward. Uh, as a legislator, I need to rely on the IHA lobbyist uh, as being the spokesperson for my representative's home because we don't things move fast enough that we don't always get time uh, to circle back. Uh, but uh, being part of the organization and, and being on the same page in uh, uh, on issues is very important for us. This concludes our special IHA Hospital Day on the Hill podcast. Thank you to all the members who were able to attend in person, and thank you for listening.